Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. In the last podcast, I spoke about individual freedom. I argue that all people are free because God made them so. This includes an innate freedom to think, to speak, and to choose. Last time, the focus was on the freedom of the individual. Today, I will provide a biblical framework on how to think about individual freedom as it plays out amidst other free individuals. Generally, here is the question I will develop a biblical answer for here today. What happens when one person's freedom to choose comes in conflict with another person's conscience? What is the amicable solution? In particular, I will apply the answer to the issue of individual autonomy and vaccination. That is, cognizant that all people have bodily autonomy and freedom to choose, what is the loving thing to do when my choice bothers the conscience of my neighbor? If given the option to vaccinate or not, would the loving thing to do be to sacrifice my medical freedom for the sake of another? In the case where a neighbor is severely offended, how can a person who declines vaccination against anything respond to being called irresponsible, selfish, foolish, and a threat to others? Are they arrogantly and brazenly exercising their freedom at the expense of those around them? And if my free choice conflicts with the will of an organization or the state, does the entity have a right to impose a vaccine mandate supplanting my bodily autonomy? In what follows, I hope to provide clarity and meaningful answers to these questions. 1. The Biblical Principle So what is a biblical way to think about interpersonal relations when my freedom conflicts with your conscience? Overall, so long as a person does not violate the principle of non-aggression, the maxim, my body, my choice, is valid. Certainly, the maxim, my body, your choice, is never valid. As I said in the last podcast, quote, Even though a person may possess individual autonomy, they are not autonomous. They do not have absolute freedom and are not free to sacrifice the freedom of another for their benefit. As long as a person does not violate the personal or property rights of others, then that person is free to choose and to do what they please. As stated, that does not imply what a person chooses to do will be virtuous or moral. They remain at liberty to choose accordingly. End quote. To develop an answer further, we will go to Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church. In chapters 8 through 10 of that epistle, Paul addresses a question that members in the church asked him, whether or not it was lawful to eat food that had been sacrificed to idols. So, in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, the apostle cautions the people to take care with their liberty. He says in 1 Corinthians 8 verses 8 to 9, Now food will not bring us close to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this freedom of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. The point that Paul was making here is that eating meat sacrificed to idols is a morally neutral free choice. That is, whether a person decides to eat the food or not, it is neither virtuous nor sinful. 
Still, what the apostle cautions the people to be mindful of is that in their choosing not to be a stumbling block to others. In the next chapter, Paul writes about his use of freedom and how he endures many things for Christ. Yes, Paul is free, but he exercises that freedom for the sake of the gospel. Next, in chapter 10, Paul brings closure to the issue. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 23 to 30, the text says, All things are permitted, but not all things are of benefit. All things are permitted, but not all things build people up. No one is to seek his own advantage, but rather that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for the sake of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for the sake of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of that one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. Now by conscience, I do not mean your own, but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered about that for which I give thanks? Paul expresses the same principle here that he wrote about two chapters earlier. On the one hand, he says in the presence of an unbeliever, if they set before you anything, eat it without asking questions. On the other hand, he says if another says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, then don't eat it for the sake of the other person. What's the point? That it's not about what the person does, because depending on the context, the apostle advocates doing opposite things. Paul says the people are free to either eat food sacrificed to idols or not, because the eating itself is morally neutral. The food is not the point, God is. For how could eating or not eating bring a person closer to the Lord? Yes, other people may be bothered by how Paul advocates for the use of Christian liberty, but the apostle asks a powerful question in verse 29. Why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? In other words, if God has set a man free to do these things, then who is man to cast judgment on his neighbor? This logic helps to explain what Paul writes next in verses 31 to 32. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all things for the glory of God. Do not offend Jews or Greeks or the church of God, just as I also please everyone in all things, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of the many, so that they may be saved. Here then is a biblical principle laid out for us. When it comes to matters that are morally neutral, meaning there is neither an explicit command to do something, making it virtuous, nor prohibiting it, making it sinful, then in whatever you freely choose to do, do it all for the glory of God. In exercising your Christian freedom, let not another condemn you, for why is your freedom judged by another's conscience? As Pastor John MacArthur writes in his New Testament commentary, Paul's instruction here teaches liberty over legalism and condescension over condemnation. Liberty over legalism means that freedom in Christ is a privilege, that privilege is to be forfeited only when it may clearly offend someone else and thus deter the work of the gospel. 
Notice that for matters which are morally neutral, there is no law and therefore no compulsion. A free person therefore freely sacrifices their own freedom and a person ought not to voluntarily sacrifice their freedom unless it is for the purpose of building someone else up. Hence, when one person limits their liberty, they do so with the intent of helping a weaker brother grow in their understanding of their liberty. Condescension over condemnation means we may modify what we do for the sake of others, but we are not to modify our conscience. To violate conscience would be a sin, and in a world in which people constantly modify their conscience merely to accommodate others, unbelief, legalism, and depravity would reign while faith, liberty, and righteousness would be forgotten. Thus, instead of arguing or trying to impose my freedom or another, I act or refrain from acting so that someone else will be edified. Coercion or me trying to supplant your freedom with my conscience would be sinful legalism and a violation of condescension over condemnation. Furthermore, the legalism of another should not make us legalistic and judgmental. Rather, it should produce gratitude that God has gifted us with the liberty to either eat or not to eat. Condescension over condemnation also means that we are not called to exercise our freedom in a way that offends a weaker brother. This offense implies actual harm. Resultantly, the relationship between individual freedom and concern for the other is dynamic and there is a constant give and take. The ultimate focus is never myself or my neighbor, it's God and His truth. To reiterate the principle expressed for morally neutral matters, the Bible teaches us to prefer liberty over legalism and condescension over condemnation. In whatever the Christian chooses to do, they have to demonstrate the majesty of the Lord and ensure their behavior exalts the gospel and not pollutes it. 2. Application Vaccination and Vaccine Mandates We just walked through how individual freedom plays out amidst other free individuals. Now let's change gears and apply said principle to the issue of vaccination and vaccine mandates. I think this application is fitting considering what is happening in reality as well as the fact that freedom does not get much more personal than the right of individuals to choose what is put into their bodies. Biblically speaking, getting a vaccine is morally neutral. The Bible is silent when it comes to vaccines and let us not make a law where God has not spoken. This means, according to the Word of God, whether you choose to vaccinate or not is neither righteous nor sinful. So, cognizant that all individuals are free and possess the innate right of bodily autonomy, what happens when one person's freedom to choose to get a shot or not comes in conflict with another person's conscience? Should the bodily autonomy of an individual be sacrificed for the individual autonomy of another or a group? And the answer is, so long as a person is free to vaccinate or not, biblically speaking, there is neither a right nor wrong answer. 
Certainly, a person for whatever reason may freely decide to vaccinate or not for the sake of another, but that is a free decision consistent with conscience. However, a person ought never to be coerced because the bodily autonomy of an individual ought never to be sacrificed. Why? Because in any situation where one person is forced to act against conscience, there is a violation both of the divine image and individual freedom. Again, a person may freely modify what they do, but they are not called to modify conscience for another person. Conscience is what animates action. Coercion, therefore, compels an individual to act against conscience, which is a sin. Once you degenerate toward coercion, you now have a paradigm of legalism over liberty and condemnation over condescension. Coercion also violates natural law and innate human dignity. Hence, because coercion in morally neutral matters equates to gross violations of biblical principles, vaccine mandates are wholly unbiblical, they are immoral, and they are sinful. The ominous reality is that if you say yes to sacrificing your bodily autonomy, then you will say yes to anything. Any truly free society demands adherence to the non-aggression principle. No person should initiate force against another and should only use force in self-defense to protect life. Mandating that substances like vaccines be injected into someone else's body cannot be justified as an act of self-defense because no actual harm is quantifiable. How can defending forced immunization as self-defense be justified when it can never be shown with certainty that the non-vaccinated person would have been responsible for another person's harm? And no vaccine is risk-free. Therefore, how can it be demonstrated that the potential harm of the vaccine is less than the potential harm to another? In the West, the last time a society openly embraced supplanting bodily autonomy and experimenting on people was in Nazi Germany. The Nazis were in power during a period in which arguably the greatest violations of human rights in modern history were committed, including forced scientific and medical experimentation on human beings on a mass scale. Subsequently, after the fall of the Third Reich in 1948, the United Nations passed its Universal Declaration of Human Rights. In that declaration, Article 3 states, quote, Everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. End quote. The subsequent Nuremberg trials resulted in the Nuremberg Code of 1947, which provided a set of 10 standards that addressed questions of medical experimentation on humans. The Code established a foundational global standard for ethical medical behavior that included voluntary informed consent of the human subject. In 1966, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights declared in its Article 7, quote, No one shall be subjected to torture or to cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment. In particular, no one shall be subjected without his free consent to medical or scientific experimentation, end quote. Forced medical procedures and medical coercion are especially monstrous violations of basic human dignity and autonomy. The world of the 20th century learned this lesson the hard way, but it seems the world of the 21st century has unlearned this lesson amid the current era where fear reigns supreme. 
the age-old maxim is true, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. In the end, the biblical ideal is living in a free society, cognizant that free societies are often messy. That is the price of freedom. To live in a society where freedom is sacrificed means bearing the burden of living a life that is not human. To live in a free society, one must be willing to tolerate people who make bad decisions and bad choices as long as they do not directly infringe on the rights of others. 3. Application The results of my freedom to vaccinate or not on others. Now before I leave the issue of medical mandates and vaccination, let us take one line of thinking to its ultimate conclusion. A person may reason to themselves and say, given the option to vaccinate or not, wouldn't the loving thing to do be to sacrifice my bodily autonomy for the sake of my neighbors if that would protect them? If I neglect to vaccinate, that may translate into someone else getting sick. Doesn't that make me unloving, selfish, and a threat to others? Of what value is my Christian freedom if that liberty hurts other people? I have five responses to these concerns. First, if we take a look back to 1 Corinthians 10, 23-30, it is clear that the text speaks about the use of individual freedom in the context of another individual. So, for example, in verse 24, Paul says, No one is to seek his own advantage, but rather that of his neighbor. Neighbor is singular. Furthermore, to be judged by another's conscience implies being judged by another singular person. Groups or segments of society do not have a collective conscience. Therefore, the text does not talk about the use of individual freedom in the context of fuzzy groups, as in the betterment of society or for the greater good. Biblically speaking, the collectivist social contract does not exist, and the text does not talk about using your liberty being mindful of potentially offending a whole group of people. It speaks about actually offending an individual that you know. What burden would it be for a man to live worrying about offending strangers he will never meet? Therefore, when the Christian considers the free exercise of his or her liberty, he or she should keep specific individuals in mind. This typically means friends and family that are close by. Second, another potential argument for vaccination would be that people tend not to get sick as sole individuals. Instead, when one person gets sick, so does the village around them. Hence, if enough people decide not to vaccinate, they threaten herd immunity, which refers to the state when a large portion of a community becomes immune to a disease, making the spread of disease unlikely. As a result, the whole community becomes protected, not just those who are immune. This argument would continue to say that the unvaccinated are a threat to everyone because they threaten the herd and are delaying the time until herd immunity is achieved. The problem with this logic is that when you talk about diseases and crowds, it's sick people who pose a threat to healthy people. It's not unvaccinated to vaccinated. And let us not forget that no vaccine is perfect and pathogens change. This simply means that not everyone who was vaccinated develops immunity and not everyone who was unvaccinated becomes infected. So as long as you are human, you can get sick. That's the way it's been since the beginning of time. As a result, if you are a healthy, unvaccinated person, you pose no threat to anyone because you are not sick. 
to further suggest that the unvaccinated person gets a free ride off the back of the vaccinated person is a misdirection because the vaccinated person is never denied any presupposed benefits from their own individual health decisions. Third, another potential argument for vaccination would be that it would deliver a person from social ridicule and make their life easier in a crowd. But since when has righteousness been determined by the crowd? Was it not the mob that said, crucify him? We now live in a culture where vaccination is erroneously associated with virtue and non-vaccination is associated with vice. The logic behind this moral calculus is that a person's behavior can affect the harm caused by disease, and it is therefore right to not only mandate vaccination, but also to make life difficult for those who do not conform. Well, if we take this logic to its natural conclusion, that also means that in every other area of life, whenever a person engages in any behavior that can portend adverse health consequences for other people, they should be punished and or discriminated against. This therefore means all the following people should be guilted, shamed, and molested in their everyday lives. Smokers, the obese, diabetics who drink soda, hypertensives who consume too much salt, fast drivers, absent-minded drivers, and those who play contact sports. It also means that we should throw in jail all the women who murder their children through elective abortion. We should also lock away all the healthcare providers who were accomplices to murder. If we try to artificially constrain life so that all health-related risks are minimized, what you have left is no life at all. To live life invariably means being exposed to the risk of normal life, death, disease, accidents, and pathogens. Fourth, another potential argument for vaccination is that failure to vaccinate hurts other people either directly or indirectly. Oliver Wendell Holmes once communicated the libertarian idea of non-aggression when he said, quote, The right to swing my fist ends where the other man's nose begins. End quote. The analogy often used is that the unvaccinated person is the one who is actively swinging their disease-laden fists in someone else's face. The problem with this line of thinking, however, is that the person who uses their liberty not to vaccinate is not taking action at all. They are choosing inaction. And let us also not forget that the fist swinger is not immune. He too can get sick and is the first person to suffer the consequences of an illness he contracts. In fact, he may be so unwell that he's not out in the street. He may be home in bed away from everyone else without the strength to swing. The only way the analogy would work is if an infected person with evil intent goes up to someone else and then coughs directly into their face. Additionally, a person who is swinging their fists intends to hit and hurt someone else, whereas the pathogens from an infected person operate independently of the will of the infirmed. As the saying goes, the healthy have no need of a physician, but the sick do. And I will now say the healthy have no absolute need for vaccines, but the infected need treatment. Therefore, a healthy, unvaccinated person cannot be held guilty for being a threat to someone else when they haven't done anything wrong. 
The principle is worth repeating. Morality in the Bible is based on concrete, actual phenomena in reality, not potential and nebulous imaginaries. Therefore, only what is actual can properly be a threat. Fifth, another potential argument for vaccination is that we are presumably in a so-called pandemic of the unvaccinated. On the level of language, this statement is blatantly false because pandemics of the unvaccinated do not exist. Pandemics of the infected who have a contagious disease do exist. And why would you ever have to compel someone to take a vaccine if it's so beneficial to you? If vaccines work and produce robust enduring immunity, then that means everyone who is vaccinated is safe and everyone who is unvaccinated is unsafe. This means either with time or contagion, everyone without a vaccine suffers, so they are a threat only to themselves. If vaccines do work, then why would a vaccinated person need to worry if they are already protected? If they are not protected, then why would anyone else get the vaccine? The reality is, we are not in the midst of a pandemic of the unvaccinated, but we have been living in the midst of gross human foolishness since the Garden of Eden. A person is a fool if they actually believe there is wisdom in forcing others to undergo a medical procedure if they would remain unprotected from getting a disease. If anything, that's a logical argument for vaccine refusal. 4. Application what vaccine mandates tell us about where we are. In an ideal free world, all people would be free to do as they please so long as they do not aggress upon another. Unfortunately, what has happened in the past 18 months is the progressive medicalization of life so that a healthcare decision an individual makes in one small sphere of reality affects all other spheres in reality. This explains how entities like the state and private businesses conspire together with healthcare providers to collectively compel individuals to sacrifice their God-given right to bodily autonomy. This should pierce the conscience of all people because the medicalization of everyday life is one of the first steps in the path toward totalitarianism. Politics is the use of persuasion and power to rule masses of humans. Economics is the realm of voluntary free exchange. Medicine is the application of science to the furtherance of human health. These are all fully separate disciplines. To subordinate medicine to politics degrades medicine and creates a perverse system of healthcare that abandons serving people and adopts authoritarianism as an operating principle. Because independent spheres are now perversely being meshed together, we live in a culture where politics makes medical decisions, business enforces political matters, and the best medicine is determined by what's best for business. Medicine is a branch of science which is not an organization but a process of testing and trying to falsify ideas. Science certainly is not based upon authority and is very certainly not allied with power. Real medicine and real science therefore have nothing to do with social pressure. Sadly, no longer are many providers guided by the oath, do no harm, but instead religiously follow the mantra, you must obey. This sends a message to the masses that you are nothing more than subordinate pawns of the state. This perverse paradigm means culture is now regressing toward accepting the darkness of totalitarianism. 5. Conclusion 
Freedom is our mental backbone. We have moved from the general principle of individual freedom to its particular application in the realm of bodily autonomy, vaccines, and vaccine mandates. I will now return to general principles and ask again the question I asked at the beginning. So what happens when one person's freedom to choose comes in conflict with another person's conscience? The practical answer depends on if you are living in a free society or not. In a free society, individuals honor and respect the freedom of their neighbors. Here, there is a preference for individual freedom. In an unfree society, individuals are only allowed to live by permission and there is always a preference for the so-called collective conscience. The collective will always attempt to impose its will on individuals, which is why freedom is our mental backbone. Voltaire once said, quote, So long as the people do not care to exercise their freedom, those who wish to tyrannize will do so. For tyrants are active and ardent, and will devote themselves in the name of any number of gods, religious and otherwise, to put shackles upon sleeping men. End quote. It is not surprising that secular power is trying to increase its freedom at the expense of people. After all, this is what secular power has always done. What is surprising is how people have so quickly adapted to giving up their God-given freedom and never stop to ask themselves if what they are doing is right or if it is consistent with the truth. Over the past 1.5 years, the people of the world have been asked to accept a new normal. However, this process of normalization often means accepting things the way they are without any discussion about how they should be. Truly, the new normal is not normal at all, but is being uncritically accepted as regular and ordinary because people are asleep. To provide a concrete example, just think about how many times the goalposts have moved since the spring of 2020. First, we were told to lock down for two weeks to flatten the curve, then everything would return to normal. That was a lie. Next, we were told to mask up and distance, and everything would return back to normal. That was a lie. Then we were asked to place all of our faith in vaccines, and once they arrived, they would save us. That was a lie. Do you notice a trend? With each new ask, individual freedom progressively vanishes. Would you rather continue to be led by a stranger into the darkness or wake up and open your eyes? In the democratic West, people tend to think tyranny will look like the tyranny our ancestors endured. Instead, totalitarianism that is nurtured by the root of democracy is more pervasive and subtle. It degrades people without overtly traumatizing them. Because it is a silent threat, it is far more dangerous. After all, a people that do not realize they are losing their freedom will not fight for it. They will simply let it slip through their fingers. The person that therefore bothers my conscience is my neighbor who unquestioningly yields their freedom and wants me to do the same so they can feel happy and we both can be slaves. The new normal is also being uncritically accepted because people are demoralized and afraid. A people who are uprooted and alienated lose their sense of who they are and what the world means. As a result, a freedom-consuming totalitarian ideology has a certain irresistible hypnotic charm that answers all questions and soothes all anxieties. A people who are terrorized and afraid forget about their innate human freedom and flock to the state to ask it to please take their liberties away so that they will be safe. 
Thus, an essential aspect of totalitarianism is the consignment of reason and conscience to a higher authority. People, of course, place their faith in the system because they fear all other objects of faith. And fear, as history shows, is the method most often used by secular power to increase the strength of secular power. History also demonstrates time and time again that the state is far more capable of mass murder and terror beyond what any individual can do. Accordingly, totalitarianism is an ideology of darkness, but this darkness only grows in the absence of light. Do you ever stop and consider the world around you and get frustrated? Do you ever meditate on what's happening in reality and get angry that people seem to passively accept lies and live as if what is true and right does not matter? If the spirit of the age nudges you to live by lies and that bothers you, that is a good sign. It means you are not asleep and recognize the lie for what it is. It means your conscience, which never stops preaching the truth, has not been silenced. The specter of dissent is haunting the world of immoral secular power. This specter has not appeared out of nothing, but is the natural and inevitable consequence of the present moment where governments can no longer rule in defiance of divine law and with the arbitrary application of power. Dissent exists when a person refuses to let go of the truth in the midst of the lie. What I don't want is for anyone to get angry and then become demoralized where you either give up or become apathetic or resort to violence. Instead, my hope is that you will strengthen yourself in the Lord and find your all-sufficient source in Him. My hope is that through meditation on the Word and prayer, you consider that perhaps the madness all around you is not designed to make you crazy, but rather draw you closer to sanity. Perhaps all those who sheepishly succumb their wills to the lie will provoke you to strengthen your resolve in the truth. With this perspective in mind, perhaps this time is a gift intended to grow your spiritual fruit, sharpen your reason, and make concrete your will to fight for freedom. Therefore, be courageous and don't bemoan the situation, but rather embrace it. The real normal is how things should be and is the way God designed them to be, for people to live not by lies, but to live in the truth. One of the truths to live is that all people are inherently free. This includes their right to bodily autonomy. Freedom is our mental backbone. Hence, once you realize that you are already free and no one else has to grant you permission for liberty, it is then that you can start living in the truth and take local, personal action as a free individual. Being strengthened in the truth and recognizing your God-given dignity, when someone else's conscience attempts to supplant your freedom, you can calmly say, I will not comply. In practical terms, living in the truth refers to any means by which a person or group revolts against manipulation. For example, speaking up and saying something when reality defies common sense or neglecting to participate in a ritual if it perpetuates a lie. It is only by nonviolent resistance that tyrants we put in check because once you resort to violence, you have become like the tyrants. But be mindful. Do not seek for someone else to fight for your freedom. Don't ever make the mistake of thinking that someone else will take risks for your values. 
Subsequently, freedom fighting begins with you and the most meaningful struggles are not televised in prime time. They are often never reported and often involve people no one has ever heard of. The most significant struggles for freedom happen locally every single day. One may object and doubt the power of living the truth if it has no large media presence and if it is dispersed and disconnected. That is simply because the power of living in the truth is qualitatively different than the power of tyranny. The power of the powerless is living in the truth, which continually breathes life into its disciples. You see, you cannot attack what you cannot identify, and you cannot localize that which is not centralized. So, what matters most is not one big event seen by everyone. What matters most are small, persistent changes that happen every day in individual lives. And, once you begin to stand for freedom, you will begin to see effects. You will begin to see people promoting, life-affirming, community-building, freedom-preserving effects beyond anything you might ever have imagined possible. The most important ripples, though, are not what you see in other people's lives, but in your own. Freedom is your mental backbone because the bold and courageous person does not derive their strength from others. They derive their power from the divine who enables one man to stand in the truth against the tyranny of the majority. As Mark Twain wrote in The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, quote, The pitifulest thing out is a mob. That's what an army is, a mob. They don't fight with courage that's born in them, but with courage that's borrowed from their mass and from their officers. End quote. I reference this quote not to speak against an army per se. I used it to speak in favor of the bravery it takes to stand up as an individual. Bravery cannot exist when it is diffused in and amongst the crowd. True bravery only exists when no one else will stand and only the individual remains to act in courage. For was it not David alone who asked the question, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who taunts the armies of the living God and then walked up to the giant Goliath? 1 Samuel 17 verses 26 and 40. Subsequently, if the world hates God, should we expect that someone else of the world will take a stand and refuse to compromise on divine truth? For many, what has happened in the last 18 months is a -a once-in-a-lifetime occurrence. For some, it has been more adversity than they have ever experienced and a greater attack on their values than they have ever known. But what I hope you understand, dear listener, is that perhaps you haven't given an opportunity for such a time as this. Perhaps you recognize that God places his agents in fit places for doing his work. He restrains his enemies so that his work is accomplished, and in his providence, God tests his people. By God's grace and daily supplies of divine strength, you will be refined to persevere so that you can handle more. The preparation is the point. So, let freedom be your mental backbone, and let not your freedom be judged by another's conscience. As the saying goes, the funny thing about responsibility is that you carry it with you everywhere you go. Hence, if you embrace the current adversity for what it truly is, an opportunity to rise to the occasion, then you will begin to do exactly that. And, once you begin living in the truth, you will encounter others who are walking the same path as yourself. To paraphrase the words of the late Czech dissident Vaclav Havel, 
Freedom is not merely doing things you want to do, it is reflecting upon the things you should do and occasionally taking a risk. Living within the truth means stepping out of line, denying the lie of unjust secular authority, and therefore denying it in principle, threatening its very existence. Hence, the power of the powerless rests not in their possession of any physical or actual power, but rather the actions they take that go beyond itself and illuminates their surroundings. The consequences of such actions are limitless. Therefore, live free and recognize that your ultimate responsibility is never to the conscience of another, it is to God himself and the truth that he infused into the conscience of people made in his glorious image. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.